Hey, you're listening to the Riverdale Podcast. This is episode number 231. My name is Jonathan. Welcome to lovely Riverdale, USA. This is an Archie Comics fan podcast. We update every Saturday morning and every week we bring you uh, cool stuff in the world of Archie Comics. This week is no exception. We're uh, dispensing with our normal format, just as we did last week, to bring you another long-form episode. I don't think this will end up as long as last week's episode. Um, but uh, we get a special guest, a couple special guests coming on in just a few minutes. Um, Paul Castiglia and Rick Offenberger, who are the authors of the brand new MLJ Companion book that is coming from Tomorrow's Press. We'll talk more about that when we get to them in just a few minutes. That'll be the nearly the entirety of our episode. But I do want to jump in and get a uh, book of the week uh, in here. Um, before we get any farther into the episode, if you guys missed last week's episode, if you've missed the conversation online, um, we have started the countdown to the end of the Riverdale podcast. This is episode uh, number five in that countdown. We're going to go five, we're going to count down to one, and we're going to be wrapping up the podcast in the first week of September. So uh, just uh, so everyone is forewarned, that's what's going on right now. I'm going to try to bring you guys some great uh, conversations and some cool episodes between now and then. I've got some cool stuff I am cooking up. Um, yeah, so uh, next week we're going to do uh, – uh, I want to answer a bunch of emails, a bunch of questions. If you guys have questions about the show, questions about uh, my opinions, thoughts, uh you know, whatever. If there's a question you've had in the back of your head over the last four and a half years of this podcast, send it in. I'm going to be doing. Uh, I'm going to be answering emails next week. Um, you can send those as always into Riverdale Podcast at yahoo.com, or you can find me on uh, Twitter, Facebook, uh, Tumblr, uh, however you want to send those in, um, or if you want to call uh, or <laughs> uh, send a voice memo. However you want to get in touch. I would love to answer your questions next week. Make that a big uh, question-answering episode. Um, all your questions answered next week on the Riverdale podcast. Um, so for now, let's jump into it. We'll get into the book of the week, and then we'll get to my conversation with the authors of the MLJ Companion. All right. I don't know if you can hear that cranking, but we're setting the timer for five minutes. To keep this show rolling. And we're going to talk about this week's book of the week, Jughead number eight. This is the final issue written by Chip Zdarsky, which is a sad thing to say out loud, as I say it out loud. Um, I thought we had one more issue with him, but it states here in the back of the issue that Ryan North is coming in with issue number nine. Um, so uh, enough about the future. Let's talk about the present the present is Jughead number eight, which um, concludes our sort of uh, two-part storyline with Archie and Jughead out in the woods. Uh, you'll remember last issue, um, uh, Archie and Jughead ventured into the woods to go on an adventure, um, and they stumbled upon the Reggie, the the Mantle uh, family reunion. Just piles and piles and piles of uh, of Reggie's relatives who all behave very much like Reggie. And that issue wrapped up with um, Archie and Jughead lost in the woods, about to be attacked by a bear. And we pick up there. Um, and Mr. Weatherby comes in, which is so great. Um, you know, obviously the first story arc couldn't have happened 
without the absence of Mr. Weatherby, uh, with the storyline of the new principal coming in. Um, but it just makes it all the more exciting to see Mr. Weatherby um, in this Jughead reality, um, in this really, really funny comic. And, uh, you know, Chip sends us off on a really high note. Um, there's great comedy in here, um, funny jokes, funny one-liners. Um, and uh, uh, letterer Jack Morelli does a great job of doing these sort of, like, subtle trail-offs um, it, within the word balloons that are sort of indicating that people are talking under their breath. They'll make a like a, a statement that they want everyone to hear, and then a statement that maybe they're a, a little more secretive about. That's just uh, the print gets a little bit smaller in the word balloons, and I love that. Um, so while Chip brings us a lot of great, um, uh, great humor in this issue, there's also a lot of heart. There's really uh, through it. Uh, Jughead and Archie coming to this understanding that, uh, you know, they're friends and that there are certain, like, weights to that. There's, you know, Archie has been very much preoccupied um, with the ladies of Riverdale, and Jughead has felt very left out. Um, And there's an exchange, a very um, heated and very poignant exchange, in which uh, Archie says something to the effect that he's not going to uh, apologize for being, like, a normal person. Um, In the panel after that, uh, shows Jughead just, you know, looking at him very disappointed because, as we know in this series, um, Jughead, it's been established that Jughead is asexual. So, obviously, Jughead doesn't understand what Archie's going through, and there is kind of um, a bridge that needs to be built between these characters in terms of understanding, and that's something that happens within this issue and is really, really nice and really warm and really special, um, but, again, doesn't take away from the action and the physical comedy and the just overall funniness of this book. And I mentioned just then that really uh, knowing, really hurt, sort of smoldering look from Jughead towards Archie. Um, that points to the, the great acting that is done uh, by the new series artist, uh, Derek Charm. Really brings uh, a different look to this book than Erica Henderson did, um, but really makes it his own. It has very much... Um, it very much feels visually like a like a boom comic or like a boom box comic like that. Um, I feel like there's an aesthetic that's sort of come up out of that uh, imprint of boom um, in terms of uh, a style that I would point out as being sort of animated looking. Um, but uh, I mean, a little more detailed than you would in an animated character, but really, really pretty. Um, and really nice. Uh, the char- the characters look really youthful, which I like a lot. I like that. I like when Archie looks like a kid. You know, he looks like a 15, 16 year old kid. He's got those sort of like, um, just like boyish. He's got the, just a boyishness to his face that I like a lot. Um, Derek Charmer also does a great job with these flashback panels that go back to Mr. Weatherby's time in high school in the 70s, which is fantastic. Um, And the big reveal in this issue, in my assessment anyway, I don't know if this counts as a spoiler, but at the end of the issue, we meet Mr. Weatherby's wife. Um, And sort of canonically, he's never had a wife. Um, And I thought that was really rad. What is her name? Ramona. There's my time. Um, but if you're not reading this book, read this book. Uh, if you tuned in last week, you know that, uh, I'm a huge fan of this book. Um, we talked about the first trade. If you missed last episode, 
uh, go back and check it out. Um, we, we, myself and my special guests, Barbara Ann and John, uh, really talked endlessly about how much we love the Jughead series. So it's so good to be back here next week, uh, this week, talking about this week's book of the week, Jughead number eight. All right, folks, The MLJ Companion is a brand new book written by today's guests. It will be uh, released September 14th by Two Morrows Press, um, T-W-O Morrows Press. Um, if you're unfamiliar with them, they do amazing books and magazines about comics. And this particular book focuses on the MLJ superheroes, um, who we've seen recently in the Dark Circle revival, but of course go back to you know, the Impact comics from DC to uh, the Red Circle comics in the 80s, um, and, and dating back to the 40s and obviously preceding um, Archie and Jughead and the Riverdale gang. So uh, this book, as I said, is coming out September 14th. You can pre-order it now at tomorrows.com. Um, you can get either a, a print or digital version. Um, I'm really, really excited about this book, which is why I wanted to get these folks in uh, before the show wrapped up um, to, to to talk about this book and uh, you know their intentions and, and what they're excited about presenting um, with this book. So um, without further ado, let's jump into it. Paul Castiglia and Rick Offenberger, welcome to lovely Riverdale, USA. Thank Pleasure you. To be here. Let's. Um, I know that both of you guys have been have been sort of in the world of Archie comics for some time. So, can you guys give give me and give the listeners like a little bit of a background of you've both worked sort of with and for Archie comics um, for a number of years? Rick, do you want to start with you? Um, sort of... sure. Paul was there first, though. Um, I I met Paul um, when up through the. Archie fan message board when he was working at Archie. And um, I ended up um, doing a lot of interviews with the people at Archie. Um, Paul was my first one. I did Paul and Fernando's interview uh, for Silver Bullet when um, he was working on Archie's Weird Mysteries and was switching over to Archie's Mysteries. And um, Alex Segura, who was the PR guy at the time, had left Archie for... Uh, DC Comics, and I already had a relationship with uh, Michael Silverplate, so when I found out that, our, uh, that Alex was leaving, I called up Michael and I said, I want Alex's job, mm-hmm. and they hired me on the phone um, while I was driving to my day job, and uh, I worked there for 10 years from uh, January 2006 uh, through February 2016. And I was uh, the public uh, relations coordinator, and uh, I, I had a great time at Archie. Awesome, Paul. Do you want to tell us a little bit about your history with Archie Comics? Sure, sure. I, I started working for Archie in 1990, uh, and um, I left in '99, uh, the staff job. That is, but while I was on staff, I started as an assistant editor. Uh, I was brought in, uh, one of my main duties was to help launch the Archie Americana series. Yeah. Uh, the, the series of reprint books, and that sort of became, the, the whole trade paperback collection thing sort of became my niche there for quite a while, uh, amongst other things. But I was working there first as an assistant editor, 
to Scott Fulop. Uh, then I became an editor. I co-edited uh, some different titles. Uh, we were trying out some 48-page specials for a while. So there was Reggie's Revenge and Josie and the Pussycats and Sabrina's Halloween Spectacular. So I worked on all, all those books. Uh, I started just doing all kinds of different edit, editing work. Uh, I helped launch Sonic. Uh, you know, and, then, and then at the same time, I was doing some writing for them on various titles, including stories for the regular Archie book and for Little Archie. When, when it was done, um, they tried a newfangled kind of Calvin and Hobbes approach at one point, so I was contributing stories to that. Uh, regular Archie, I think I may have said that already, and um, you know, just a, a whole bunch of things. Uh, one of the specials I, I got to edit was the Archie Super Teen specials, which were bringing back Archie and Jughead and and Betty and Reggie and their super heroic alter egos. So that was a lot of fun. Yeah, I have that. Uh, I have that pull-out poster on my wall. I think it's the. Yeah, it's all all that stuff I got to do. Plus, I got to be on the kind of business side too. I, I was a liaison with um, with all the distributors back then. There was more than Diamond. Mm-hmm. Uh, eventually, it just became Diamond. But I was a liaison with the distributors, with retailers. I was writing press releases. For them, uh, geez, for years, uh, and catalog copy for diamond uh, distribution catalogs and all the other catalogs. So I had to kind of one foot in the creative end, writing and editing, and one foot in the business end with marketing and promotions. And so I learned everything really there is to learn uh, about not just the creation of comics, but uh, also the the business side as well, which was just great. It was a great uh, education for me. Uh, so that was a lot of fun, um, you know, and, and when I left the, the job, I, I continued to do some uh, freelance work for them, writing Archie's Word Mysteries and different trade paperback collections, uh, which we'll talk a bit more, I guess, uh, as we go on uh, as it pertains to some of the, the MLJ and, and Mighty Comics characters. But, yeah, that's been my history with Archie. I've kind of been associated with the company uh, since 1999. I mean, 1990, sorry. 1990, not 1990. <laughs> so you guys have a, a pretty intimate knowledge of the company, but it seems like you also, you know, moving into a conversation about the book, The MLJ Companion, um, you guys have a, an intimate knowledge of the characters. Um, where That's how we got connected, is that we, we shared that love of the MLJ characters. And um, I had... First, uh, yeah, I first met Paul on uh, the Mighty Crusaders message board, and um, I ended up getting, he got me solicitation copy um, that he used to write from Fred, and they didn't email it to you, they mailed it to you. So it came stapled together with uh, photocopies of the covers, mm-hmm. and I used to put that out on Superhero News, um, what, you know, back in the day. Yeah, the, the the whole kind of genesis for me was when I graduated, I, I went to art school, School of Visual Arts, and when I graduated, I realized that um, I didn't really have a, a good enough handle on composition or perspective or anatomy to compete with uh, a lot of my fellow graduates. And I thought, gee, you know, after after studying animation and comics, you know, majoring in it, <laughs> I better be able to get a career here, and it's my passion. So, you know, I always had this handle on, on storytelling, and I could think visually. I, I knew enough where I could kind of draw picture scripts, uh, like storyboards, and so I put a portfolio together based on that. And and my idea was, let me try to get 
freelance work, but let me also see if I can get some kind of full-time job, like learning editorial. And I know this is kind of a, a long ways around getting to the Mighty Crusaders, but it's part of the story. Yeah. Because in my research to, of companies to reach out to to try to get editorial work, Archie was on the list because, you know, I, I live in New Jersey, so it would be easy for me to take a job in New York, the neighboring state. Um, so I started, you know, picking up Archie Comics. And when I was a kid, I, I only bought Archie Comics sporadically. Um, you know, I used to pick them up every now and then, mostly Jughead from the newsstand. Or I'd get them at church. They had the, uh, the Spire Christian Archies at church. You would get those. So, so um, you know, I, I only had kind of like a tertiary, you know, familiarity with the characters from that and from seeing them on Saturday morning. But I didn't know the superheroes. And what I did was I started just kind of buying up comics from the different publishers that I wanted to try to get work from. And that included Archies. So I bought some Archie Digest. I opened them up and I see these you know, public service announcements about literacy with all these superhero characters. And there they all were, you know, the shield, the fly, the web. And I'm looking, and I'm like, well, that guy's not Captain America, but he's kind of like Captain America. And when here's a webby guy who's not Spider-Man, mm-hmm. you know, I'm like, well, who are these characters? And it just piqued my interest. Uh, so I ended up in this one store. It used to be the store in Long Island. I don't even remember the name of it. It was like a warehouse. It was literally a warehouse of back issues of comics. And I, and I went there once, and I found all these Mighty Crusaders comics from the 80s. So we're talking, I'm digging through these comics in 1989, and they're, they've already been you know, canceled probably for, what, four or five, six years at this point. But I'm finding all these back issues, and I'm snapping them up because the covers look great to me. It was like they looked like Marvel and DC comics to me, except they weren't. They were published by Archie. And I was just intrigued because the characters do have very dynamic designs, and and it just it just grabbed me. So as part of my research to try to get work in the comics industry, that was kind of my first exposure to those characters. Then the next part of the story is, as I mentioned, I was brought on to help launch the Archie Americana series, and part of that was going through all the old issues. The first volume we did was best in the 1940s. Now, Archie has in their uh, personal libraries what they call bound volumes. What they'll do is they'll take like a whole year's worth of issues, right? They send them to a bookbinder. The bookbinder takes those issues, binds, literally binds them together, and puts a hardcover on them. So that what you get is a customized collection, a hardcover collection of all the issues that came out in a given year. So Archie had most of the comics from the 1940s. Not all, but most. Uh, in fact, I would say that for most of their output, that they, I would venture to guess that they probably have one of the most complete libraries of their past printed work of any comics publisher, uh, having been through all those bound volumes uh-huh. several times over to work on the Americana books. So here I am digging through bound volumes of Pep, which, you know, Archie doesn't come along until Pep number 22, which I if memory serves as a December 1941 dated comic book. But prior to that, it's filled with superheroes, uh, including and primarily the shield, uh, you know, who I came to find out was the first patriotic superhero, even before Captain America. So as I'm doing my research for the Archie collections, 
I'm really getting immersed in these old superhero comics and stories and, and, and loving it. And I had already come into the company as like a huge Jack Cole fan. So I'm going through and I'm seeing The Comet by Jack Cole, and I'm like jumping through hoops because I'm going crazy thinking, this is great, I love Jack Cole, and I can see the, the origins of his style and how he later put a lot of the same things to use in the Plastic Man stories I love. So the whole thing was just tremendous. It was just a wonderful experience to just discover these characters. Uh, it was kind of like a, a fringe benefit of having to do the research for the uh, Archie Americana books. And that, that's kind of how I came to a, a love and appreciation for these characters. Now, now since that time, I would say that Rick uh, probably is, is uh, not probably, he is. He and a few other people are, are more knowledgeable than me in terms of remembering you know, dates and facts. Uh, through the years, I've been involved in so many things that it's been a little more difficult for me to hold on to all that information. You know, it's like when your hard drive gets overloaded. Uh, but um, you know, but the the love of the characters and the affinity for the characters is, is probably the, the strongest thing within me. And uh, so I knew when they called me up and suggested that I consider doing this book. Well, I can't do it on my own. I really need a guy like Rick, who's just as passionate and also has that amazing, you know, knowledge database in his head of, of this stuff and has done so much great work uh, kind of cataloging and uh, chronicling the adventures of these characters through the years. I mean, it's just an amazing body of work that Rick has done, getting interviews with different people who worked on the characters through all the different decades. And so it was natural to, to say, no, I'm not doing this on my own. I, I need the help of a true expert, and, and that was Rick, you know, so... And then later on, later on, John got at it. John B. Cook came into the mix too because he was handling the the, the production and and kind of the design of the book. Mm-hmm. And he he had some ideas for some additional content that we thought were really great. So he added a whole bunch to it too. Uh, so what, what you get in the final result is a really kind of well-rounded book with a lot of variety that I think people are really going to enjoy. One of the things I want to say is that. Um when I started online with the Mighty Crusaders, I started with a Shield-only site. And um, there were a lot of them, but this was before Yahoo and before uh, Google, which a lot of the readers may, or listeners may not remember. Uh-huh. But um, I was doing a Shield-only site on GeoCities. Awesome. And uh, Brad, Brad Cobb was doing um, a Mighty MLJ site. And I had talked to him, and we, we were friendly. Um, and his Mighty MLJ site used to be the MightyCrusaders.com because that was before Archie was online. And they wanted the name from him, and they bought the name from him, and he had to change to Mighty MLJ. He was um, in, news, in the newspaper business, and um, he would contact... He loved Impact Comics. He would contact the creators by ordering white page phone books and finding their contact information, be it uh, addresses or phone numbers. And um, he would conduct these uh, interviews either on the phone or through the mail with all these um, impact comic creators. And um, eventually he uh, became a minister and gave me his site. And um, also... um, Scott Martin gave me his site, and I combined the sites together to make the uh, make uh, MightyCrusaders.net. Mm-hmm. It was a network of different sites put together. But um, 
all these interviews from Brad were conducted before it was easy to do. I mean, he had to do a lot of detective work to get in touch with these creators. And, um, you know, he, although he's not a credited uh, author in this, he wasn't partaking in making the book. We do include a lot of his interviews. And it, it, yeah, uh, I, I consider him the fourth author, quite honestly, because uh, of, of all, all those contributions. I mean, they cannot be, um, you know, downplayed. They're, he did so much great work, as you said, so much research and, and really just the work, putting the work into it. Making it happen. Can we talk about just the the book itself? If people, uh, I mean, we know the name MLJ Companion, but like, if they're picking up the book, like, what what are they expecting to find in there? Is it is it a history? Are there reprints? Like, what 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 exactly are we getting with this volume? Tomorrow's does a whole series of companion books, and the first thing they did was send us a copy of the Quality Companion. So um, we could kind of mesh it up so it matches with uh, um, their companion books. Mm -hmm. And so at the beginning of the book, it's um, some color reprints of uh, key uh, MLJ stories, so you get a feel for it. And then we get to some uh, origin stories, and then we get into history of uh, what the the company was and the different eras, because... um, Unlike Marvel or DC, the MLJ heroes weren't published continuously for 70 years. They were published every decade, but there are gaps between where they publish and then they stop publishing and they publish and they stop publishing. And so we cover all of those. Um, We didn't cover anything that was uh, a, a start and didn't reach actual publication except for the Spectrum line because um, there was so much uh, going into that, and there were completed comics, and we got some original art from Kelly Jones for that. So um, that was the only line that we actually talked about that didn't actually see print. Uh-huh. Wait, can we get into the, the Spectrum comics? I don't. That's not a name I'm familiar with. Spectrum comics. Uh-huh. So in, the, in the late 80s, uh, there were... There was a, a move by Archie to try to get, um, try to really compete with what was happening uh, over at the competition in terms of uh, direct market only titles. You know, you have to remember that this was the, these were the times of uh, the Dark Knight Returns and and Watchmen. Uh, so things had been getting more on the um, the gritty side, and there was this adult fan base that was buying comics in the direct sales market and. You know, I guess uh, like any businessman uh, would, the Archie guys uh, kind of became aware of how well the sales were going and said, well, this could be, uh, you know, supplementary sales to our regular, you know, fan base of kids who buy our Archie Digest. Uh, so they pursued it and they brought Scott Fulop in uh, to, to work on it from an editorial standpoint. And uh, he enlisted a whole bunch of people that uh, some of them were already doing work somewhere up and coming, uh, but who could kind of take on this more adult tone uh, that the fans were getting uh, in some of those uh, you know, books from DC that I mentioned and some of the Marvel stuff like the Frank Miller Daredevil, uh, kind of take on that kind of tone. I mean, I'll let Rick elaborate more on who was involved and, and what was planned, but that's sort of the genesis of what was supposed to be Spectrum and and uh, we could talk about why it didn't happen after after Rick uh, fills in a little bit more about it. 
the, the fly was the one that was probably the farthest along. Steve Englehart had finished um, the script, and we actually have an excerpt of uh, the script that uh, Steve provided, uh, not the full script, but an excerpt from it. Um, and so you can actually see the script. Um, Hangman uh, was also pretty far along. Kelly, when they saw the art from Kelly Jones, uh, they decided that they couldn't do an adult-only series uh, or a mature reader series. Mm-hmm. Um, with art like that in the same publication that they were doing um, Archie. they That was their decision that that was a little too far. But they were also looking at the Fox with Jim Valentino. They were actually after Rob Liefeld to do the art on the shield. Wow. And uh, at the time, well, Rob wasn't a big name at the time. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. They, they, uh, they, cause, but uh, Rob and Valentino, Jim Valentino shared a studio. And so Jim Valentino uh, had pitched the Fox for them. I don't believe it got beyond the pitch point, and I don't know that you know, they never signed Rob to do it, but that's who they were looking at. And then Mark Ellis was writing that, and he did a Jaguar pitch. And there was also a pitch in there for Mr. Justice, and that was the original uh, plan. And at the time, I was just a fan when this stuff was coming out, and um, I wasn't working in comics. But I remember when they ran the ad in the Comic Buyer's Guide. And um, that they, that was really impressive to see the art. Um, and we, we run an excerpt for the Comic Buyer's Guide, too, on that. Um, but um, it, it was the line that could have been. Um, don't know if it would have taken off and, you know, brought them to the same heights that uh, DC and Marvel now have with their superheroes. But, um, you know, the MLJ characters haven't had a huge run um you know well they did have a huge run from the 30s you know in the 40s um all the way to the end of the golden age superheroes because the shield continued all the way to the end um and then when you start off with the time adventure of the fly ran all the way until um the end of mighty comics uh, that was a decent run too for a title especially in those days but since then it's been you know fits and starts but you look at any of the other golden age line of heroes and none of them have really done anything there are little revivals here and there um you know like fighting american shows up from time to time at different publishers and um dynamite did a lot with a lot of different uh public domain superheroes but um you know none of them have really caught on and been able to endure the way these characters have aside from the ones at marvel and dc and they're they're financed by huge corporations yeah, so so Spectrum is that what it's called? Or, it was called Spectrum. Spectrum that would have come that like a few years before the Impact license Correct. came, right? This would have been like like late eighties yeah. in that era of like Marvel doing Epic and yeah, late eighties, early nineties. You get a piece of that history in our book uh, to talk about that. I mean, look, it was a different time, and and so you know there were a lot of things that Archie had to consider. Uh, that went into their decision to not move forward with it. Uh, it obviously, times have changed, and they do have a, a gritty line of of uh, MLJ character books out now. So it just goes to show you, you know, how how things progress. But uh, yeah, that was well, that this- was part of it there. But we do get into the Impact line too. Uh, we get into Absolutely. the DC versions. Mm-hmm. One of the things about Archie is that they're they're very um, 
well managed financially with uh, their budgets and all that, and to consider that they had uh, spent the money for the covers, they'd spent the money for the stories, they'd put together posters, they'd paid for um, you know some tra- advertising in um, you know the catalogs, and then they cut the line. That that had to be a hard decision, you know. What I mean? That was something where um, you know they'd invested a lot into this. And they decided that this really was a direction they couldn't go into, not a, you know, because there were some financial assets put into this project. Yeah, that is really surprising, and it does um, make their decision to license their characters in the early '90s a little more easy to understand than if they're just, uh, you know, I mean, for lack of a better term, handing the characters over and sort of reaping the financial benefits. I would think. Every company that has intellectual property, if they don't have an engine to uh, keep perpetuate the intellectual property in the public's mind, you know they have to find a way to get it out there. You know they have to find someone who's willing to publish it and or put it on a digital platform or whatever it is. You know, so so you know when someone comes knocking at your door and you're not in a position to put the characters out yourself but someone says I want to license them you know you have to you have to consider that you know that, that becomes a supplementary uh, income for the company a revenue stream so yeah and considering I'm sure part of recouping some costs uh, from not moving forward with spectrum uh, may have gone into the impact decision as well but uh, you know the fact is the comics were made and, and we got some really good comics out of it for me personally, uh, the the main uh, joy for me of the Impact line was the Mike Powerbeck uh, Fly comics, just because he was such a brilliant artist. You know, may he rest in peace. I mean, he he, I feel that he's kind of the unsung artist that led to the whole kind of DC animation look. You know, you look at that that. Batman the Animated Series, and there's some, you know, Fleischer Superman in there, and there's some kind of Alex Toth, Hanna-Barbera animation design influence in there. But there's a lot of Mike Powerback in there, too. And, uh, of course, he did some of those uh, comics uh, that came out after the Batman Animated Series came out, you know, before he passed away. Uh, But, uh, you know, all these things happen for a reason, and I think it's great that even though it was unfortunate, people never got to see the vision that was going to be Spectrum, you know, the characters lived on to see another day mm-hmm. uh, at Impact and then beyond that, um, you know. So when, when I got to finally write some stories with the characters, it's funny, it all became part of that kind of Batman animated look. I had Fernando Ruiz uh, drawing the Archie's Word Mysteries. Um, well, I didn't have them. The company had them drawing uh-huh. it. But when he drew them, I said, hey, can you make these, these guys look like they're in a DC animated kind of look? And we also had been doing some public service announcements in the same kind of style, too. Uh, so, you know, all these things come around. Uh, so, yeah, they, they endure. Like Rick said, the characters endure. I actually have some original art from Fernando from that series hanging up on my, um, on my wall. Um, I got the... Um the page with the heroes' uh, heads where they introduced them. I got the, those pages. And then I've also got uh, the origin pages from uh, Archie and Friends uh, Meet the Shield. 
That's awesome. And I've had those up since those uh, since they came out. I bought them from Fernanda, and, and it's tremendous work. I, I love that stuff. Yeah, you know, we were hoping to get a series going at one point. I had an idea uh, for a series that, that I think would have worked really well in the early 2000s uh, to kind of explore uh, the difference between heroes who are proactive and heroes who are reactive. And... Um, you know, I, I wanted to kind of keep it on a Jerry Conway level because uh, I grew up reading Spider-Man in the 1970s, and what I loved about those comics were they were they were always like standalone in terms of you could read the issue and and you get a full story out of it, and yet he would always sprinkle in uh, you know little bits and pieces for what would become the main story a few issues down the road. I loved that, and plus they were kind of like kids could read them and get them. But there was some stuff in there that was a little more sophisticated too, that I didn't really get till I was older, and I kind of liked that. And I was hoping to do that with Fernando doing the art, but uh, that just kind of never got off the uh, off the ground, so to speak. So yeah, Fernando's action stuff is always amazing. When he did the uh, the Man from Riverdale storyline within the Archie book, I feel like a lot of people saw saw his artwork in a different light. And then, especially moving ahead to the the Archie versus Predator stuff. Yeah, he he can do anything. He's just a, a consummate artist. He's terrific, and and the nicest guy. Yeah. And and he has, like us, an affinity for all that's gone before. You know, not just in comics history, but also animation and pop culture. And you know, like I find a lot of the uh, the guys who really uh, can stretch with their talent, whether it's writing or drawing are the ones who really are well-versed in what came before, you know, and I'm hoping that a book like the MLJ Companion will reach a kid who's never really explored much either about these particular characters or even just comics, because that's how I came up. You know, I came up borrowing the great comic book heroes book by Jules Pfeiffer from my library. Like every other week I would, I would borrow the book, you know, I was surprised they didn't just, you know, asked me to buy it or something you know i was always looking at that book and and i had dynamite magazine as a kid which was always reprinting um origins from marvel and dc superheroes so to me it was like it didn't matter that stuff was like from the 40s or the 50s or 60s uh to me it was just all this amazing history and i was kind of lapping it up and i think that that informs your work you know when you have that as your as your background, it really informs how you approach things. And Fernando has that, uh, like I said, and a lot of the Archie writers and artists uh, really kind of have that kind of mindset. Dan Parent is another person. Uh, you know, I worked with Dan Parent in the office for many years and, and Bill Geiger as well. And, you know, we just had this foundation of, of enjoying, you know, classic comics and classic comedy and pop culture and all that. So it really comes to play in the work. Did did you ever have those flashback reprints from Alan Light? That's where I, when I was a kid, my father used to buy those because those were the comics of his childhood. And he used to share those with me. And they did um, the origin of the Hangman and the origin of the Shield um, issues, as well as all the Marvel, all the old Marvel stuff and the old DC stuff. I found about those, about those after the fact. I never had them. I wish I had, you know, it would have been kind of cool to, to get a hold of those. But, yeah, I, I found out about those after the fact. 
Were those in like yeah, book, were those in book format or like issue format? No, no, no. He photocopied them as far as I could tell, direct <laughs> from the comics and printed them. Um, saddle stitch stapled just like a comic book is with a um, hard co- a harder cover, um, like a paperback book cover. And um, he's the guy who started the Comic Buyer's Guide when it was a comic uh, guide, uh, buyer's guide to fandom. Um, but he, before that, he's making reprints of his Golden Age comics when no, no inter- there's no internet. I mean, this is in the 70s. And you could never see these comics. You couldn't find them. They were, at the time, uh, worth hundreds of dollars, which was worth far more than it is now. Yeah. And, um, you know, they, these were things that you couldn't, you, you couldn't find. Some, Chuck Rosansky probably had them. But other than that, <laughs> you couldn't find anyone who actually had these books. And, uh, I mean, it was almost like a public service. I, but I couldn't figure out how he could take these copyrighted characters and reprint copies of um, All-Star Comics or Flash Comics number one. I mean, real key issues. And uh, that, that was uh, where I, I guess that's where I very first saw these. But it didn't make a, you know, a huge connection to me at the time with The Shield or with uh, Hangman or anything like that. It was more of a connection with my father in the comics that he grew up with. You know what's uh, interesting? I'll just I'll just throw this in here because um, you mentioned uh, copyrights. What's interesting too about the Crusaders kind of having in, endured and, and been around in every decade, as Rick mentioned, is uh, a lot of it was you know protecting the copyrights and the trademarks. And it's amazing to me that that. Um, there have been people through the years that had thought that just because there was an obscure, you know, superhero character in an MLJ comic in 1942 that it's somehow public domain. But uh, Archie has always worked very hard to maintain the copyrights, and and those public service announcements that I mentioned that I saw mm-hmm. uh, in the in the late 80s that were just kind of saying, you know, you know, we're for literacy kids. Those were really uh, created to kind of maintain the, the trademarks and copyrights. So even though there wasn't a, a full-fledged effort at that point to publish the characters, they'd already done the Red Circle characters, it was just a way to kind of keep them out there, perpetuate them in the public's mind, but also protect the copyrights and trademarks. Um, but yeah, the MLJ characters, uh, they are owned by Archie. Uh, Mighty Comics, yeah. all all the iterations, they are owned by Archie. Um, yeah, they um, absolutely. They, um, but I mean, they were the Alan Light stuff, the flashback reprints. were also doing DC and Marvel characters. They were doing Captain Marvel. They were doing Superman. They were doing, uh, you know, they were doing Submariner, Human Torch, mm-hmm. Captain America, and they just left that go. That he was reprinting their stuff, but of course they yeah, weren't. It may have been. It may have been one of those things where they were just looking the other way just because it helps keep the characters out there, perpetuate them. But, you know, yeah. it was a good time in the 70s to to just be able to see that stuff in the 80s. Because you would, like I said, uh, Rick mentioned that on light flashbacks, uh, there was Dynamite Magazine, which used to get through Scholastic in school. Yeah, that was reprinting I got the that too. Yeah, they were reprinting The Origins, so that was a big influence on me. But also... The, the publishers themselves, like Marvel and DC, used to do this, and I, I loved it. It was such a great time to be growing up buying and reading comics. They used to fill the issues 
with reprints. If you got like a, an annual or a hundred page special, you know, you'd get one or two new stories, but the rest would be these great, you know, reprints that could be from the fifties or the sixties, you know, occasionally the forties. And so I, I'd, I'd like to see you know, more of that. I, I think it was more affordable back then to, to see older stories because they would come out in a more affordable format, whether it was a giant size issue or a digest, or maybe one of those giant size treasury editions. Whereas now it's mostly stuff. Yeah. The treasury editions. But now if you want to see that stuff, you kind of have to show out bucks to get a trade paperback or a hardback, uh, you know, and for a kid, it, you know, if it's a family trying to make a decision financially, it's, it's not as easy to do that. So, uh, you know, I'd love to see it come back to the point where you can get more of those old reprint stories in a regular comic so kids could really experience it. You know, or not just kids, but anybody, you know? I think everyone who came into the characters, um, and it's part of what we talk about in the book, always had a reverence for what came before. You know, so the guys working on the stories in the 60s, you know, they would consider, like, well, what happened in the 40s with this particular character? And maybe they made some changes, but, but uh, you know, they were aware of it, and they, they made the effort to kind of continue it. And the same thing in the 80s. I think they would look back and say, well, what are the, what's the basis for these characters and what happened to them in their 40s and their 60s incarnations, you know? So. Well, yeah. I think also there's a, there's a family feel to Archie in that it's a, there's a family ownership. And it's a privately uh, held publisher. It's not, you know. So there, there's a reverence not only for the characters, but a reverence for the, you know, this is what my, my parents had done. This is what my father had done with the company and with these characters. And, you know, we're bringing them forward and we're trying to, you know. But I, I think that plays into it. Yes. Yeah, and, and talking of, I guess, maybe maybe families, maybe this is an awkward segue, but um, the other the other members of the MLJ family, do you guys get into that in the book at all? Uh, I mean, obviously you have the Mighty Crusaders, you've got the Riverdale kids, and then there's sort of all of these other characters, Squimey the Worm and uh, Super Duck and Cosmo and all of that stuff. Is that anything that you guys touch on? There's a little bit of that in the book. Uh, not not too much. We We, we try to keep it about kind of super-powered characters. So you do get Super Duck in there. I think there's a little mention of um, Captain Sprocket. Um, Red Rube is in there. So there's, there's some of that. Uh, you know, we touched upon Archie's super teens. Uh, it's just a such... Look, we, we, had, <laughs> we had enough material for two books, minimally, maybe three. Yeah. So the final, the final book isn't even everything that we worked on. Uh, we worked on a lot of stuff, and we did cover a lot of ground, but, you know, you have to kind of rein it in and bring it to a manageable length, uh, you know, and, and I, I think it's still got chock full of variety, and it's going to really satisfy the fans. But, uh, you know, we also in, wanted to touch upon the fact that these characters didn't ha just have a life in comic books. So there were kind of like some little detours here and there. There was a Black Hood radio show. We talk about that. There was a board game in the 60s with the Mighty Comics characters. We talk about that. Uh, there was interest in making a movie out of the fly with Michael Uslan and Robert Semeckis 
involved in that project. We talk about that, uh, the Remco action figures. So we get into a whole bunch of these little detours as well to kind of show that uh, these these characters, while they may not be household names, you know, they were in the mix, you know, and, and they were likely to, uh, you know, have come across, you know, a child's playroom uh, at some point mm-hmm. in some form, uh, even though they're not, you know, super known names uh, even today. Uh, they did have, uh, you know, if you're part of the expression, an impact. <laughs> well, if you look at the Silver Age um, of comics, I mean, Marvel starts in 63, but at that point you already have um, Lancelot Strong, The Shield, and you've already got The Adventures of the Fly starting. And those ran till 60, you know, not not that The Shield ran that long here into it, but The Fly, all the way through to Mighty Comics, ran into the, you know, 67. And so you figure that that's a huge run for anyone's Silver Age line. I mean, DC, you know, never stopped publishing superheroes, but even Marvel stopped in the 50s, um, stopped publishing superheroes until the 60s. And so um, Archie was a player with their Mighty Comics. I mean, it wasn't like, it. you know, I mean, they published a few comics and, you know, no one noticed. And um, the Jaguar was beautiful art i really good really good stuff really beautiful art on fly girl um and real contemporary for its day yeah i i think that the the kind of silver age stuff uh is kind of unfairly maligned and even reviled by some but it's important because it shows archie's role you know in the in the dawn of the silver age uh, you do have, like, Simon Kirby working on early issues of The Fly. You have Jerry Siegel, the creator of Superman, coming back to write stories. You know, admittedly of varying quality, but still it's the guy who created Superman and, and you could say, launched the superhero comics, you know, industry and, and creative milieu. You know, so you have this. And at the same time, endlessly fascinating to me is how as they progressed there was an effort uh however successful or unsuccessful you may view it to kind of extrapolate the best elements of both marvel and dc comics of the time and fuse them together to create this kind of mighty comics aesthetic and um i don't know i think it's really fascinating i mean i i can look at those comics and and get a lot of enjoyment out of them just for what they were, you know? I mean, to me, Too Many Superheroes, which is the story that always comes up, you know, to me, that that's epic, and it's fun, you know, and people like to criticize yeah. it. It was voted uh, in the, in the, there was this funny two-issue two series that I think that Kitchen Sink put out called The World's Worst Comics, mm-hmm. where they, it was kind of this kind of, <laughs> it was basically an award show. The comic was an award show with Siskel and Ebert types, uh, you know, talking about all these old comics of uh, of dubious merits, you know, like the Dell superhero comics or the, uh, you know, Frankenstein as a superhero or Dracula. But they voted Too Many Superheroes as the all-time worst uh, comic book, which, you know, I don't think it is. I mean, it look, it it no. has, it has cheese, <laughs> you know, more cheese than a, you know, than a dairy, but 
but it's really fun, you know. And so you got to kind of look at these for what they were. And, and I think that's one of the key things for me is that it's like Batman. You know, Batman exists in many different iterations. There's Batman for kids. There's Batman for adults. And within that, there's so many different iterations of Batman. And that's kind of true for all these MLJ and, and Mighty Comics and Red Circle superheroes. You know, they they have appeared in all different types of styles uh, and in all different, both visually and in terms of the stories, all different types of styles. And, you know, it's not to say one's more valid than the other. It's just to say, hey, you know, these are characters uh, that are an open canvas and you can come on and run with them and have fun with them. And, and I think that's what we all respond to is that they're the people who work on the, the stories featuring these characters, the writers and the artists have a lot of fun doing it. And so if they have, are having fun doing it, we're having fun enjoying reading the stories and looking at the art. Well, I think there was a point at which um, comic fans didn't like camp. And that was where you get, uh, you know, the story where too many superheroes was voted the worst story, um, you know, in someone else's publication. But, um, I think that um, if you look how popular uh, Batman was in 66, you know, Archie's doing that type of stuff before. Um, mm -hmm. And that was popular in its day because they continued to publish the comic month after month. It just later people became more embarrassed by that as uh, Batman 66 became the public idea of what um, superheroes were. And so I think that's where you get some backlash, but I think that now that, that is over. I mean, you, you see DC oh, yeah. embracing well, the comes around again, Batman. right? Yeah, everything exactly. Comes and so I, saying, Hey, that Batman 66 was so bad. It is what it is. You know, and that's the <laughs> exactly. way to look and at so, any of these things. Look at it for what it is. And if they, if people go back now and looked at the, the mighty stuff, I think they would have that same idea. I think there's a certain love and fondness there that people will um, see and enjoy. Uh, when you go into the Golden Age stuff, um, the Shield was a proactive hero in a time where most heroes were reactive. I mean, he, he was a G-man. He, um, he created his own persona. He, fought, <coughs> he finished up his father's work. He wasn't someone who was just reactive, and that was unusual. You look at the Hangman, and he's a Batman-esque type character, but his brother, the Comet, uh, was a superhero first, and it's the avenging the death of his brother. And there, there was never a point at which um, you had relatives being superheroes. There was never and, a point where uh, a major superhero character was killed. Let's start Well, there. he was popular no. and selling well. Yeah, yeah I mean, and, death and, of the superhero uh, is... <laughs> It is like oh. every day. And for anyone who doesn't know who the comet was, think of think of Cyclops and the X Men, and that, that's right. basically where where the character comes from. I mean, it's, it's the same visor, it's the same dissolving vision. I mean, you look at uh, Captain America comes after the Shield with the same idea and the same concept. You look at uh, the Shield takes on um, Dusty. And uh, then Captain America takes on Bucky. There are a lot of similarities to things that were original ideas and concepts when they were new. They were interesting and different. And, um, you know, later as people keep 
uh, developing them and continuously publishing in other companies, it, it looks not, not so groundbreaking. But uh, right. you mentioned Red Rube with the comedy characters. Um, just for the Red Rube fans, and I know Bradley's a huge Red Rube fan and will listen to this, Red Rube is uh, more like, he wasn't a comedy character, he was more of uh, Captain Marvel, where, you know, yeah. he would say the magic yeah, yeah. words. I didn't, I didn't mean to imply that he was comedic, uh, but yeah. he, he doesn't get um, as much play in, in this book. Uh, just no, for, no, he doesn't. For space limitations, but... Um, but um, yeah, you know, the other thing is, like we say, everything comes around. So the the camp comes around, but also now there's Dark Circle, right? So now you can yes. see the the MLJ characters in the dark and gritty tone that was originally slated for the Spectrum line. But in reality, that stuff was happening in the '40s uh, in some of the MLJ comics. You know, the Hangman stories and Web stories, uh, to just name two of the characters. Uh, there, some of those stories are are very dark, and uh, so, again, to Rick's point, that um, some of these things I think people didn't realize at the time uh, were actually innovations uh, coming from the MLJ stable of writers and artists, uh, but they were. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it sounds like from what you guys are describing, this book is is going to be a great primer for folks who have never heard of these characters and don't have an appreciation for them, up to, you know, someone like me who knows, you know, a, a fair amount about it, has read some of the comics, read some of the Impact stuff, um, and, uh, I mean, and had n- I had no idea about the Spectrum line. That's what I'm, I'm really excited about reading about in the book. So would you say that's, that's fair to say, that there's going to be something for anybody with any sort of level of, of interest or knowledge? Yeah, because well, we're hoping that... Uh, We're hoping it's a love letter to the fans of the the Mighty Crusader characters. But at the same time, we're hoping it works for people who are fans of Golden Age comics in general. Just as Paul and I discovered Jules Pfeiffer's book at the library, um, I still have my copy. After you keep it too long, they charge you for the book. Um, You know, we're hoping people will pick that up and, um, you know, find joy for these characters they didn't know. Uh, people who follow, you know, and we're hoping it'll stay in print and it'll be a perennial and people will learn to love these characters the way we do. One of the things I, I like about the book, and it's it's what I like in a lot of books that I have in my personal connect collection. I, I collect a lot of books about old comics and animation and, and especially old movies. And I love the books where you can kind of pick them up and read them in different parts of the book, where you don't necessarily have to read it from the first page to the last consecutively. You can kind of jump around. And, you know, so what we've given is we've given a history of the characters from the beginning to the present day, but it's broken up into chapters and categories. So you can jump ahead. If you, just, if you want to jump ahead to the spectrum, uh, portion and read about that. You can do that first if you want, or you can go to the Mighty Comics section, or you can go to one of those uh, interludes where there was a Black Hood radio show or, or some other thing. You know, you could do that pretty easily. Uh, and so I think the book will really uh, bring endless enjoyment to readers, uh, no matter what their interest level is. You know, when they pick up the book, uh, I think if if they're mildly interested by by the end of reading through the book, they're going to be greatly interested. Uh, if they're already greatly interested, well, it's just going to 
be a delight for them no matter what. Awesome. That sounds great. And in 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 wrapping up, let's. Uh, I guess I'll, I'll shoot this question to Rick first, and then to you, Paul. Where would you like to see these characters be uh, in in five years or ten years? Um, I mean, obviously, Dark Circle is happening right now. Um, some folks, it, it hasn't exactly been my thing. Um, but uh, yeah, I guess I guess where where would you like to see these characters in in the future, Rick? Well, I mean, I would like to see them take off with the Dark Circle one. I'd like to see five years of continuous publication. Um, right now, we're in the middle of the story of the Hangman. We're in the middle of the story of the Shield in the first arc, so we don't have a full feel for what that's going to look like. But uh, I, I would tell you to go back and pick up the um, the Black Hood. I mean, it's a very good story, um, and it's a very powerful story, um, much darker and grittier than, than your average superhero story. But, it, I mean, I'd like to see them be able to take off these characters. I'd like to see, I mean, I, I really like the interpretation of the uh, Black Hood and how they presented it. Um, I, I'm good with the Hangman. I'd like to see more of the classic S.H.I.E.L.D., although I do like the, the new interpretation. But, I don't, you know, with, we're not through with the story, so I don't really have a good feel for the character. But, um, you know, and, of course, my love is the classic versions on these characters. But, uh, yeah, if we could get five years of continuous publication, that would be outstanding. Yeah, I would like to just see, see them become popular, too, and, and maintain popularity uh, beyond what it is now. Um, I'm like you, Jonathan, and Rick, and I, I really have a, mostly an affinity for the, the classic versions. Um, you know, I think there's a place for, for Dark and Gritty for some of the characters, but for some of them, like, I would have loved to see how they would play in other media. Uh, so for me, you know, I dream of a, a DC animation style uh, Mighty Crusaders cartoon with the kind of traditional characters. I, mean, I think that would be so much fun. I would love to see that, you know, something that everybody can enjoy all ages. At the same time, like a, a, a cable or a um, streaming series for something like Mr. Justice would be phenomenal. I mean, I just, just so much you could do with a character like that. So I, I would like to kind of see if these characters could kind of branch out uh, into popular media, you know, films and television, uh, because they, they have great stories to tell, and, and why not? You know, if we can have, you know, Marvel movies and Netflix shows about Daredevil and, and uh, all the DC animated movies and feature films, you know, why not uh, have these characters kind of come to life uh, in other media, too? And I, I think that would help uh, perpetuate their popularity as well. So for me, um, yeah, obviously I would like to see them succeed even, uh, you know, even if I, it's not totally uh, my preference for the dark stuff, um, I would like the characters to always succeed, uh, both in print and, and beyond print. So let's hope the uh, mighty crusaders keep marching on. Did you see the? Did you read the fox? Either of the two of you, because the fox was also part of this deal, and it was not uh, dark and gritty at all. It was very um, fun and lighthearted, and um, it, it bringing in a lot of the golden age characters into the stories. Yeah, the fox. I, I mean, have the foxes. Guess? I just haven't gotten around to reading them yet, but. Pouring through them, yeah, I was reminded of the Alex Toth stuff, which, of course, I love that stuff. 
so I'm looking forward to, to reading those. Yeah, anything, I mean, I, I think it, it's a good idea to to not go in one direction with all the characters. I think it's a good idea to look at each character for its own merits and then do something with it. You know, and I think of Marvel when I think of this in terms of their entertainment because obviously there's a difference between Avengers movies and the Daredevil TV show. There's a total difference in tone. Uh, you know, one is, is um, you know, more... You know, PG-13 is, at this point, I would say that's more family-directed, even though it could be borderline, whereas Daredevil is really more of an R-rated thing. And so, to me, it's like be true to the characters. You know, obviously, the hangman operates on an R-rated level, but uh, why can't there be, you know, a rollicking fox for the whole the whole family, right? So, right. Me, I would like to I would like but, to see the characters kind of approached by their essences, and let's stay true to their essences. And I think uh, I think Archie's smart enough to to realize that and and you know keep it in that in that uh, fashion. Yeah, the Black Hood was always a darker character too. Right. I mean, it was in the pulp. They did it in pulp magazine with him, they, yeah. and the stuff they did in the even in the seventies, the stuff they did with him um, in the di- that came in the digest was a, a much darker story, especially for its day. Yeah. Yeah, and to, to answer your question, Rick, I loved the Fox series. It was wasn't that great. It was really. And who would ever guess? Who would ever guess you'd see the Queen of Diamonds and Rocket again? Right, right. Um, and uh, Madam Satan. Yep. Yes. Super good. And and. Okay, to... I interrupted you. Oh no problem. And to to your point, Paul, I think uh, a Fox animated series, uh, with someone uh like Dean doing the control art or even like Fernando doing the, doing the, the control art or the turnarounds for that would be yeah. amazing. Especially if they, uh, if, if they push the family angle of him being a family man, I think it, it could be a really great series. Yeah. Why not? Well, let's see, you know, let's, let's hope that, uh, there's a revolution, uh, coming for the, these characters. You know they're still they're still out there. They're still going. They're enduring. I think that's the kind of the the key buzzword of this whole uh, podcast interview mm-hmm. is that they're enduring, and there's a reason for that. So let's let's see it continue on and go even further. Yeah, I love it. I think that's a a great place to wrap it up. Um, the MLJ Companion is coming soon. Thank you guys so much for for coming on the show um, and talking about these characters. I know that. Um, some of the audience is aware of them and some of the audience is not. So I feel like this is a great primer for, uh, for, for folks to get excited about the book. Thanks for having us. Well, thank Jonathan. you for having us. Paul Castiglia and Rick Offenberger on the Riverdale podcast. Um, so much fun to talk to those guys. A wealth of knowledge and like more importantly, like a wealth of enthusiasm for these characters. Um, as I said, at the top of the interview, head over to Tomorrow's Press, or rather, Tomorrow's.com, T-W-O-M-O-R-R-O-W-S.com. You can pre-order either the digital or physical copy of that book. Um, also, check in with your comic shop. It's a possibility they could order it for you. Um, coming out September 14th, um, you can also head over to MightyCrusaders.net. 
Um, uh, Rick mentioned in the interview um, that's uh, uh, a culmination of a lot of people's time and uh, effort and research about these characters. Um, also has some preview pages from the MLJ Companion. And uh, Rick mentioned it has some stuff that uh, didn't didn't fit into the book. So there's even more content there. Uh, so MightyCrusaders.net. I want to thank both of those gentlemen again for taking some time out to talk to us for the show this week. All right. Uh, as I mentioned at the top of the show, next week we're going to do a bunch of calls, a bunch of emails, whatever comes in. In the next week or so, I will answer. I've got a backlog of a few emails, two or three. Um, I'd love to have a few more. So, um, this is, you know, nearly a last call. <laughs> um, as we are we are now one, one notch into our, our five-part countdown um, till the end of the Riverdale podcast. So get your questions in, riverdalepodcast at yahoo.com, uh, Facebook, Twitter, uh, Tumblr, Head over to riverdalepodcast.com slash ask. You can drop in questions there. I've got a few of those recently. You can also send in a voice memo or call in uh, old school style on an actual telephone. You can call 573-427-2443. That's 573-4-Archie. Send in your questions, comments, concerns, whatever you want to send in. um, And we'll address a bunch of those next week. Until then, um, I guess we'll wrap things up. I want to thank folks who have been contributing on Patreon. Uh, Obviously, with the show wrapping up, Patreon will be wrapping up as well. Um, If you haven't seen it yet, Patreon subscribers, uh, there's a a brand new video that showed up last weekend. um, That is my commentary on the 1964 Archie TV pilot. Um, You'll also be getting one more um, exclusive video in August uh, and then the Patreon will wrap up the show will wrap up that first week of September so thank you very much to everyone who's been contributing on Patreon uh, and financially supporting the show it's a huge huge help and with that I will say thank you very much to everyone for listening thanks again to Paul Castiglia and Rick Offenberger for being guests on the show this week Um, and thanks to all of you for listening um, it means a great deal to me. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. Um, I think the next uh, the next few episodes will be a little shorter. We'll get out of these uh, uh, hour-long marathon episodes. Um, I think that the, the conversations warrant the long episodes, um, but we'll, uh, we'll take a break from the long ones in the next week or two. Um, so thank you guys so much for listening. We'll be back next week. My name is Jonathan, and I'll see you again next week right here in lovely Riverdale, USA.